Welcome to the study of God's Word with pastor and author Ed Taylor, recorded live from Calvary Chapel in Aurora, Colorado. To learn more about the many resources available through Abounding Grace Media, visit us online at calvaryaurora.org or download our free app on all platforms. And now, here's Pastor Ed to take us into our study. Amen. Take your Bibles, open them to the book of James, chapter 1. James chapter 1, in a Bible study that I've entitled, Count It All Joy, taking it right from the text. You know, there are a lot of differences in this room today. There are a lot of differences and diversities that, of, that, that are in this room, just among us, those that are on the radio, those that are online. A lot of differences, a lot of upbringings. There is differences in our nationality, in our economic background, the where we were raised, where we grew up, where we live, how we live. But of all the differences and diversities among us, we all share in one thing. Everyone meets, both believer and unbeliever alike, meet at one place, and that is trials. We all face trials in life. There are trials and there are testings, there are persecutions, there's pain, there's sorrow, there's sadness, and none of us will escape the tough stuff in life. None of us will escape the difficulties. But James tells us in our text today that we can have victory in the trials, that we can learn to see trials the way God sees them and endure them growing into maturity. Notice with me in verse 2 of chapter 1, my brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Now, of course, you may have read this section before or you're hearing it for the first time today and your response is, sure. You know, sure, I'll be happy. Yes, I'll have joy in trials. Yahoo, another trial. Let's throw a party. Let's jump right in. Bring more, God. If they're that good for me, then bring as many as you want. Count it all joy in the midst of trials? You might come to this text and conclude, you mean I have to love trials? No, that's not what James is teaching at all. He's not teaching us to be happy for the trials, to invite more into our lives, but rather he's teaching us what to do in the midst of trials. Since we're all going to face them, how do we face them? How do we live with them and through them? As one commentator said, and I quote, the epistle of James was written to people who suffer. It was written to demonstrate that Christianity, as James knew it, was a metal that can withstand the fires of adversity. It's a rock that withstands the erosion of storm and tempest and wear. Christianity is no greenhouse faith. It is not an opiate for the beaten and fearful. It is a cure. It is not faith that only holds firm when there are no pressures. Rather, it is a faith that holds us steady in spite of the trials that come like tempests against us. James says that you and I are able to go through trials as God uses them in our lives and we can count it all joy, that there is joy to be found in the midst of difficulties. Now there are often things in my life, and I'm sure in yours, that I don't like because they stink and I don't want them in my life. And yet because I face these things 
and I have a relationship with God, even though I don't like the situation, I can love the God who allowed it. And I can rejoice in God, counting it all joy, that my God is going to use, yes, even this in my life for his purposes. I can rejoice in the Lord because I know him, and he knows me. I love him, and he loves me. He's promised to never leave me or forsake me. He's promised to take care of me and to take care of my every need. And although I might despise the trial, I love the God of the trial. I love the God that allowed it, and I can rejoice in him. Now, there is a profound difference between Christian joy and human happiness. And that's important to grasp because we often confuse the two. Human happiness, well, you can remember it this way. Happiness has everything to do with the happenings in your life. Happiness has everything to do with the happenings in your life. This is what it looks like. If all is going well, if there's money in the bank, the job's going well, the marriage seems to be going well, everything's in order, all things are looking up, then what does that lead to? Happiness. Of course we're going to be happy when things are going well. But then when things begin to tank, when you lose the job, or an unexpected bill comes, or you find out people are talking behind your back, or whatever it might be, when the happenings go down, our happiness seems to fade away. I mean, it makes sense. I'm happy, things are going well, I'm happy. Things are not going well, I'm not happy. Christian joy is very different. Christian joy does not depend upon circumstances. Christian joy is an inward, peaceful contentment and an ability to take joy in the Lord no matter what comes our way. So what that means is you can be both unhappy and joyful at the same time. Of course, happiness and joy seem to, be, seem to go together, but you can also be unhappy and still be joyful in the Lord. And there, we know those, there are those people in our lives that you know the circumstances are going through, you know how hard it is, you kind of measure it up and think, man, if I was going through what they were going through, I don't think I, those type, you, you, you know those people in your life and you're like, man, what is it about them? And you might say, you know, why are they so happy? But in reality, what you're seeing is joy a joy that comes from God. It's a fruit of the Spirit. It's something that God himself produces in us through relationship. Remember we learned that the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such there is no law, the Bible says. Christian joy is that inner satisfaction that no matter in God, that inner satisfaction in God that no matter what is happening, I will trust God who loves me, cares for me, and is always looking out for my good and his glory. In the midst of tough times, we can know that God is using it to work out his purposes and to accomplish his will. Why is this important to remember? Why is this important to always have at the forefront of our mind? Because very simply, there are those times in life when things are hard. And let me just add, there are times in life when things are very, very hard. Very hard. Times when I'm not happy. And even times when I'm definitely not joyful. Difficult times. Times when my family can't help me. And when friends won't help me. 
Times when freedoms are taken away, when all focus is lost. Times that are so hard and so difficult that I cannot see the light at the end of the tunnel. Let me just tell you today, there is light at the end of the tunnel. Even though you can't see it, God has shed the light of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. Jesus, he faced death. He faced burial. He rose again from the dead. He has overcome sin and death. He is the light at the end of the tunnel. Even if you can't see it right now, there is light at the end of the tunnel. Your trial will come to an end one day. One day. It's just like the sun. Does the sun still shine when it's covered, when there's cloud cover? Yes or no? Yes, the sun is shining, even if you can't see it. When the clouds roll away, boom, there it is. And God is far more faithful than the sun. You know what's happened? What's happened for us is we live in a culture that does not believe they should suffer. We live in a self-centered, narcissistic culture that views suffering as something for someone else and not themselves. So that when suffering does come, it's a shock to their system. When suffering does come, even to believers, unfortunately, this has been lacking in the church of Jesus for so many years, a true theology of suffering, that suffering is real and suffering is normal. It is part of the normal Christian life. A modern author by the name of Tim Keller puts it well. Let me read to you, and I quote. Do not think that because you're a Christian, that means certain things couldn't possibly happen to you. That's just not the case. History tells you otherwise. The Bible tells you otherwise. Personal experience tells you otherwise. It's just not the case. Trials are inevitable. They're going to happen. I read a book recently, he writes, and it had a really interesting point in one of its chapters. It says there has never been a time or place where people were more squeamish and unhappy about suffering than now. In every other culture, in every other society, in every other time, people have not been the crybabies that our culture is today. They have, not, they have known in other cultures and times that life is unfair. They have known that life is brutal and short, and they took it. This is what a secular society means, he writes. The word secular comes from the Latin, which means now. This is what secular society teaches you. You have to get all of your happiness now. This is it. If anything goes wrong with your health here, if anything goes wrong with your love here, if anything goes wrong with your money here, you're out. It's over. There's no other. There's nothing else. There's no other world after this. It's only now. You're ruined. You're destroyed. There has never been a culture that sets its people up and made them so vulnerable to the ups and downs of life than our culture. Every other place, every other time, every other culture always said that there's this world, but then there's another world. That you can get love here and that's nice, but there's real love up ahead. That you can get riches here and that's nice, but there are real riches in eternity. I found that was such a great observation of our modern day culture. And you and I, we live and breathe and work and shop and play in this culture. Yes, we have a relationship with Jesus Christ that gives us a different perspective, but think about it. 
Think about how much time you give to the culture. Think about how much of the thinking is shaped in your life by the culture. Think, think how much, you know, that's why the Bible says, don't be conformed to this world. Or in one translation, it speaks of, don't let the world press you into its mold. And that's brought into this relationship with Jesus Christ where I would say as a pastor, never has it been a higher time in the church at large where so many of those that call upon the name of the Lord, so many of those that claim to be Christians, they look toward God for what he can do for them. What kind of life can you give me, God? What kind of money can you add to me, God? What can you do for my family? How can you do this? And instead of coming to God surrendered, denying ourselves, taking up the cross, we actually are in a culture both in the world and in the church where God just becomes some magical genie that will answer all prayers and then, you, then we get mad at God when he doesn't. James says this is the right perspective to have in trials. The right perspective to have in the midst of trials. He says in verse 2, my brethren, count it all joy. If you'd like to write in your Bible, circle the word when. He says count it all joy when. And circle that word and write next to it, not if. Not if. Count it all joy when you fall into various trials, not if. It is a certainty. Life will be hard. And James says no matter what comes our way, we can experience joy in the Lord and the joy of the Lord, that you can have faith in a faithful creator. Now I know there are many of us that think, man, wouldn't it be so much easier if God would just eliminate trials and tribulations altogether? Anybody got an amen on that? He won't. You know, you kind of think, well, man, if God just got rid of all the trials and tribulations, if God just took the devil and banished him right now, life would be so much easier. Not so. If God were to do that, it would not be good for you and me. Because the difficulties of life, the trials of life, are the primary tools of God to develop you into the mature man and woman that he wants you to be. Without the trials, there won't be growth. Without the trials, there won't be a sense of recognizing that this world is not all there is. I mean, it's true, isn't it? This world isn't all there is. I mean, you think of things just 10 years ago. Let's say 10 years ago, you finally were able, you were finally able to save enough money, put the down payment, pay in cash, however you did. You finally got the car that you wanted 10 years ago, two, a 2007 brand new car. How's that car working out for you these days? Oh, I don't know, Ed. I junked it a long time ago. The engine fell out and, and I scratched it. Somebody stole it, brought it back with three wheels. Yeah, it's not the two, 2007 brand new car doesn't sound so exciting anymore, does it? Because there was a new one in 2008 and 2009 and 10 and 11. Before you know it, you're watching a commercial today and you're like, oh, I want that car. But it doesn't satisfy, does it? It wears out, gets scratched broken down, new technology. The things of this world, they rust, they get ripped off, and there isn't one thing that we are so desiring in life. Unless you desire the word of God in the souls of men, there isn't one thing that you desire today you're taking to heaven with you. Nothing, zero, none of it. It wears out so quickly. There is a world beyond today where God will make 
every wrong right. He will heal every sickness and disease. You will have a new body. You will shed this earthly body and you will have a new body that's fit for eternity and you'll be in the presence of Jesus Christ without sin and death for all of eternity. Our life here, as we've learned, is just a vapor so quickly. Guys, here's a truth to hang on to, to hold on to. In the midst of your trial today, if you want to make it, you're going to make it. I mean, if you really want to make it through, you're going to make it through in the strength of God. And if you don't want to make it, then you probably won't. Because when it comes to standing strong before the Lord, God has promised you that he will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you were able. He's promised that to you. And he always provides a way out. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. No temptation has overtaken you except such as common to man, but God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will also make the way of escape so that you might be able to bear it. If you want to make it, you will. God has provided everything for you and me to make it and to bear the difficulty and not. You see, with trials come temptations. When you go through a trial, all sorts of temptations come. Temptations to be mad at God, temptations to go back to the bottle, temptations to go back to pills, to relate. All the things that you relied upon to give you satisfaction and help and peace and give you a sense of feeling and worth and value, when you're, when you're going through a trial, those become temptations. And we're, we learn in the scriptures that there's no temptations overtaking you, that you don't have the way out. You don't have to turn backwards. You can turn to the Lord. He's your strength and he's your help. Now, the best example of this is our brother Job. Our brother Job, man, he experienced tremendous trial and temptation. He lost rapid fire the things that we value so much and that we love so much. He lost his possessions. He lost his children. He lost his reputation and his name as being a godly, holy man in the community. He lost his health. One of the descriptions of Job there is he had these oozing sores that were so, so much on his body that he was scraping them with pieces of pottery. Every part of his life was touched, emotionally, physically, mentally. And his wife as well. His wife went through the same trial. And there are two very different responses. For his wife, we have recorded in Job chapter 2, verse 9, his wife says to him, do you still hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die. You know, for many years as a pastor, I made such a grave error by drawing out some humor from Job's wife, getting a cheap laugh. Until until I understood more fully that this was the response of a grieving woman who also lost her house and her name and her reputation and her children and even her husband. She's suffering. And that's where she is, which is recorded. For Job, in Job chapter 1, verse 22, the Bible says, in all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. He was a little bit stronger even though the entirety of the book of Job, we see he struggled as well. 
especially as his friends came with all this advice and all this input, like everyone has an opinion, but only God's opinion matters. You see, what Job didn't know though, we get to read the whole book of Job and we know what was going on. Job had no idea what God was doing. He had no idea of this little exchange between the devil and him in heaven. Job had no idea that God purposely set limits and boundaries around his life. That what he was experiencing was within the will of God. He didn't understand that. He does now. He had no idea that God would restore and how God would use this trial, but he does now. The same is true for you. You have no idea how God is going to use this, but we know for a fact God is going to use it. We don't know how it's going to end up. We don't know where it's going to end or when it's going to end, but we do know this. God is in the midst, and like Job, he has set boundaries and limits around you to protect you. And even though we can't see into the spiritual realm, we don't quite know what's happening there, we know, like Job, that God is on our side and that we can trust him. And there is definitely value in your trials. Your trials are not worthless. They're valuable and they're precious. God allows them to come into our lives for a purpose. He allows the trials and temptations for a good and beneficial purpose to prove us, to make us stronger, to add into our lives and to take away. And definitely trials will have one of two effects on our lives. They will either, A, break our backs, and under the weight of them we'll be crushed as we try to take them in our own strength and handle them in our own wisdom. Number one, they'll either break our backs, or number two, they'll bend our knees and they'll humble us into humble dependence upon God. So many of you know this testimony to be true, that your prayer life and your dedication to God has never been stronger than in the midst of a trial. That he took you from a place in life where you really weren't walking with God, you weren't really strong with God, and the trial absolutely ended that, and you began to be desperate and pleading with God for the things in your life. He uses them. So James says, my brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. That word count, again, if you like to write in your Bibles, circle the word count and write next to it, evaluate. Evaluate. James says, when you fall into, when you fall into trials, evaluate them in light of eternity. Count it all joy. Put them in the right perspective. As Christians, we have to remember that trials are coming. It's not if you fall into them, it's when. And because we're God's scattered people and we're not God's sheltered people, we're going to face them. That's why Peter would say, don't consider it strange, the trial that you're about to try you. That, that's normal. And he says, count it all joy. Evaluate. It's the same word that Paul uses when he writes in Philippians chapter 3, verse 7, but the things that were gained to me, these I have counted loss. It's the same word. He says, I've got all of these things. I've got this education, this background. I've got this status and prestige. But when I met Jesus Christ, all of my past, I count. After evaluating my life in light of Jesus, all of my past is nothing compared to him. James uses the same word. In the midst of the trial, we must have the right perspective. Paul, he took stock of his life. And he set new goals and new aims toward all that was heavenly and special. I, I learned this in a very real way in the corporate world when I 
took my first promotion and I was moving from office to office. We, we would stay up till one, two, three o'clock in the morning working on reports. The boss was coming to town and we would work and get this in order and type this and get this report, turn it in, have it sent back, edited. I mean, my office was filled with 3 a.m. reports that eventually I would turn into my boss, he would look at it and say, thank you. That's really what he did. Thanks, thanks for all the work. Well, you're not gonna read it, it's like 30 pages. No, I believe you. Thanks, well, what, can't you just take my word next time? And I had these stacked in my office and when I was leaving the office to my next assignment, I asked my boss, what do you want me to do with all these reports? He said, shred them. Shred them? Do you know how many sleepless nights these reports have? Do you know how much time I spent? He says, yeah, they're no good to us now. No good to us now. How much in life will we come to that conclusion where the Lord will say to you, it's not much to us now. New goals, new aims that are eternal. God even redeemed that though. He redeemed that in my life in a very real way because he taught me. He taught me that I could stay up till three or four o'clock in the morning working. He taught me that I could get get along with very little sleep if I needed to. And those were all valuable lessons in serving the Lord. That if I could stay up for three or four in the morning for a report that's gonna be shredded, how much more valuable would my time be to do something eternal with that same time? So nothing is wasted by God. But I've learned that these things of this world, they're so passing and transient, just like Paul did, and just like James is teaching us. You're gonna fall into various trials. You notice that he says various trials, just like Peter did. Because trials come in different shapes and sizes. So, so you'll experience things that are very hard for you and overwhelming to you, and another brother will experience something else and be very hard and difficult to him. Now, here's the thing. We have to be very careful not to compare our trials, not to prejudge someone. Like, like you might be going through something, and it's heavy, and it's hard, and you're burdened, and it's just so difficult for you, and then a friend of yours goes through something, and they're feeling the same thing you are, but then you say, man, what are you, what are you belly aching about this for? This, this is so small. It's so, it, compared to mine, it's so small. Why? Don't do that. Because what's heavy for them may not be heavy for you, and what's heavy for you may not be heavy for them. You see, we're not, to compare, we're not to compare trials, but I would say this. We are to compare sorrows. Because no matter what the trial is, we all meet at the place of sorrow. We all meet at the place of pain. No matter the motive, no matter how it comes into our lives, we're not to look down on a brother because they're going through something we think is small or look up to a brother because they've just went through the most monumental thing. No, there are various trials and they come to us all. And something that your friend goes through may no, be no big deal to you. But then something you go through may be no big deal to your, to your friend. But the reality is when you guys both go through what God has allowed in your life, you both meet at the cross. It's pain. When it comes to trials, we're to evaluate them in light of eternity. We're to evaluate them of God working toward the end result so that we might bear more fruit for the kingdom. Just like with any tree, you have fruit trees in your backyard. 
Those of you that are into this stuff, you know that every year you need to go out to that tree and evaluate which branches have to go. If you want more fruit, then you're going to have to take your pruning shears and pick just the right branches. And because you've done this for a while, you know which ones need to be pruned. And if the tree could talk, you know the tree's going, leave me alone already. Put your pruning shears away. We don't need to do that. I'll give you as much fruit as you want. Just don't cut the branch. But you know you have to. It's what Jesus said in John chapter 15, verse 2. He says, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes. Why? That it may bear more fruit. The more fruitful we are, the more we face the pruning of God. Notice verse 3. He says, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. So when it comes to trials, please don't pretend about them. Be real and be yourself. It may not feel good, and it's okay to express that. I don't like this trial. It's very hard. It's very painful. Be honest. Don't complicate matters by being dishonest. God doesn't want you to be dishonest. Be real about what you're going through. And yet at the same time, even though it doesn't feel good, God is producing something. He's at work fashioning, molding, and shaping us. And God is working for us, the Bible says, not against us. And one of the things, notice, that's being produced is this word in verse 3, patience. Circle that word and write next to it, endurance. Endurance. It's a Greek word. It's the Greek word hupomone. And it literally means to bear up under a heavy load. To stay standing. It comes from two words, hyper and stand. And so it could be translated, God is producing in you the ability to hyper stand, to stand in the midst of the storm, not to cave or bend or break, that God has given you the strength to endure what you're going through. It's the difference between training for a 100-yard dash and training for a marathon. It's going to take a lot more pain and a lot more difficulty, a lot more work in your life to get ready for a marathon. You're going to need endurance. And so what do people do? They train like crazy for marathons. There is a training that comes with the 100-yard dash, but you run it and it's over. Boom, just like that. If you're super fast, you know, the fastest guy in the world, well, it's under 10 seconds, 7 or 8 seconds. And for a marathon, it's going to be a lot longer than that. And you need endurance for the length of the race. And so what does God do? He says, you got to know this. Hold on to this truth. Know it by experience that the testing of your faith is producing endurance in your life. I know the pain can be heavy and even hard to bear. Quitting might even seem like an option. Words out of your mouth lately have been, I don't want to do this anymore. I don't want to serve the Lord anymore. I don't like this anymore. I want to... those, those are words requiring God to work in your life to give you the hupomone that you need. Endurance. It's not God's will that you quit or I quit. It's not God's will that we turn around and leave him. He describes this in Matthew chapter 13. In Matthew 13 verse 20, he describes it as the gospel was going out. He said, but he who received the seed on stony places, this is he who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures only for a while. <clears throat> for when tribulation and persecution arises, because of the word, immediately he stumbles. 
We don't want that in our lives. When difficulties come, we don't want to immediately stumble and have what God's deposited in our life ripped off from us. And our life in Jesus Christ is going to involve sacrifice. It's going to involve affliction. It's a life of submission. It's a life of obedience. And ultimately, it's a life of dying to self all the way to the cross of Jesus Christ. You know, when you think of hupomone, I'm sure there are people in your life I'm sure there are people in your life where you know what they've gone through, you've seen what they've gone through, they're still standing, they're still serving, they're still giving their all to the Lord, and you look up to them, don't you? You're like, man, if that guy can make it, I can make it. And they encourage us. Now, even if you're here today and you say, no, Ed, I don't have anyone like this, you actually do. Because the author to the Hebrews speaks of our Jesus he says, he says to encourage us in our faith, he says, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who endured the cross, despising the shame. We have a captain. We have a courageous hero. His name is Jesus Christ, who has overcome sin and death. And we know that while there are times he's sitting at the right hand of the Father, we know at the martyrdom of Stephen, he was standing at the right hand of the Father to welcome Stephen in. We have a captain. We have someone to follow. And many of us have human examples as well that encourage us. It's like, yes, your faith encourages me. Your stamina, your endurance. Sometimes it's like this, I don't know how you can do this. And what's the answer? The answer usually is, I don't know how I'm doing it either. It's my faith in Jesus. He's my strength. He's my rock. He's my help. Without him, I don't know what I'd be doing or where I'd be going. But I'm with him and he's with me and I love him and it's hard and it's difficult. I shouldn't be surprised, but I'm going to go all the way to the end. I want to finish my race with joy. I want to make it to the end. God, listen, listen. God never promised smooth sailing. He never promised smooth sailing. Spiritually, he wants us to mature and grow. Notice in verse four, let patience have its perfect work that you may be perfect and complete. That word perfect is mature. So he's building endurance and maturity in us. This is what he does. What's a strong, how does a a weak believer become a strong believer? Weathering the storms of life. Endurance and maturity. This is, this is on us, verse 4. This is on us. He says, let, let. These character traits that we're speaking of don't come through the latest best-selling book from a series of sermons, MP3 CDs. They come through heartache and turmoil, testing, trials. There's not a seminary course you can take on maturity that will do the work that God will do through the trials in your life. God uses them. And he says, James tells us, but you've got to let patience have its perfect work. You've got to let God work in your life. God has chosen to use our obedience and submission to mature us. God has a role and so do we. And I believe that as believers, followers of Christ, we can all grow as much as we want, as fast as we want. Like if you really want to grow in the things of God, it just hinges on your willingness to allow God work in, to work in your life and to obey him when he prompts you. As you follow through and obey, as I follow through and obey verse four and I let God work, then he's going to work. 
I mean, the Bible even commands us to grow. In 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 18, we are commanded to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's a command. So the command to grow, remember, whenever God gives a command to any believer, he also gives the power to do it. So he says, I want you to grow up. And you're like, well, I want to grow up. And that comes through God enabling us and our cooperating. Let patience have its perfect work. Another way of looking at this is, you know, the, the, the trial can be so hard and so difficult that we try to jump in and help God out a little bit because we want to get out. Isn't your first response? I'll tell you what my first response is in any trial, even big ones, little ones, is my first response is, God, get me out of this as fast. Am I the only one in here? Man, I'm all alone, me and you. Just me and you. Get me out of here or let it go by fast. I'll endure the trial for a day, maybe. But the reality is with that impatience, we jump in, try to get out of it. Try to soften the blow. Try to work this over here, manipulate over that. A great example of that is Abraham and Sarai trying to help God out. They were given a promise of God. Even as we're reading of promises of God when it comes to trials right now, they were given a promise of God. You're gonna have a baby, a chosen gift from me, God says. I'm gonna give you a son. And what did they do? They looked at each other. <laughs> we don't know the conversation, but maybe Sarai go, dude, this is not gonna happen. I am an old woman. My husband is a really old man. It's not gonna happen. We're beyond childbearing. And yet, for a while, they waited until finally the physical overcame the spiritual and Sarai made the suggestion. And it was a cultural one. It was like everybody was doing it. Everybody was doing it. Here, take my handmaid, Abram, and she will be the one that gives us the promise of God. She'll be the one. And that's what they did. And they produced a little boy by the name of Ishmael. Don't forget that name, Ishmael. Ishmael was not the promised son of God. It was the work of the flesh in Abram and Sarai's life. And Ishmael became a thorn in the flesh in Abraham's life and all of his descendants, even to this very moment. The descendants of Ishmael are causing the descendants of Israel much difficulty. A few years later, God did fulfill his promise. If they would have just waited, if they would have just waited, there are times in our lives when we settle for the Ishmaels. We've decided not to let God complete us. We've decided not to allow his work in our lives. And we jump in to try to help him and create something in the flesh, in our own strength, and mess things up badly. We turn to man as our own solution. We think man's going to help us. We think somebody in a position of authority can help us. We think we have all sorts of options that are clouding our vision of letting patience have its perfect work let God do be careful of impatience be careful of trying to take a shortcut to the things of God God's goal in our lives is spiritual maturity and here's the truth God doesn't need your help and just like in every other service not a one amen in the room when I say that because there are just times in our lives where we think God needs our help God doesn't need my help. He doesn't want my help. 
to allow the work that he's doing in my life. He wants my obedience and my submission. He wants my cooperation. God wants me to trust him, to take the next step with him. I know that some of you are experiencing what has been called the dark night of the soul. And it's not referring to just a 24-hour period, just one night. It often refers to what the psalmist called walking through the valley of the shadow of death. You just feel like it's never going to end. And you're tired and you're weary. Perhaps it's something physical, so you wake up with it in the morning, you go to bed with it at night. Perhaps it's something emotional, so you feel it in the morning and you feel it at night. Maybe it's something spiritual where you're under attack and you're under oppression and your mind is off. Maybe it's a combination of all of the above. And you sense that, man, it just doesn't feel like, Ed, I'm ever going to get out of it. And while I don't know when it's going to end this side of eternity, I do know it's going to end eventually. That there is this world and there is the one to come that there is this time on earth which is just like a shadow and a vapor and then there's all eternity. And even though I don't know when it's going to end, I do know this. There isn't a moment that you're living right now that God isn't using that trial to build up, build you up, strengthen you to bear up under and to give you the kind of maturity that you could get no other way. I know we wish we could read a book or something, but we can't. It's not going to work that way. The only way, the only way we're going to find the kind of strength that we're looking for is by turning to, turning to the Lord Jesus Christ and submitting to him all over again, moment by moment, day by day. God's goal is spiritual maturity, and God is not satisfied. And he doesn't work half-heartedly. He doesn't let things go unfinished. As a matter of fact, it's all part of the process. What God has begun in us, he's going to be faithful to complete. Philippians chapter 1, verse 6. And so God is developing your life today, right now, in the trial, through the trial. He's building character in you day by day. All the trials, all the temptations, all the pains, problems, sorrow, sadness, all of it is being used to conform you and me into the image of Jesus Christ. And I acknowledge to you today, I know it's hard. I may not know the difficulty exactly how you're feeling it. So I wouldn't be able to say I know what you're feeling. But I can say this. I know, of, I know of what you're feeling. And the difficulties that come. But greater than that, I know of a faithful God. That even when we're faithless, He remains faithful. That even when we're ready to quit, God will never quit on us. Even when we turn our back, and we walk away for however long it might be. That might be you today. That might be exactly what God's doing in your life. You have walked away, but the difficulties brought you back. Well, listen, God has promised never to leave you or forsake you. Every moment, every breath of your life. Cooperate with him. Submit to him. Let patience have its perfect work so that you might be mature and complete, lacking nothing. Father, we do accept the truths of your scripture today. We receive them as life-giving words. We receive them as life-giving truths. And would you please forgive us for doubting you? I know it's normal and I know it's human, but I don't like it. I know it's not helpful for the kingdom. And I just pray, God, for those that are hurting those that are struggling, those that are going through 
some of the worst of the worst, that, that even what we know of what they're going through is not even the half of what they're going through. Would you be a comfort to them today, God? Would you reveal yourself in a powerful, mighty way? Would you show God the truths? Would you give some kind of insight? Would you give some kind of glimpse? Would you give some kind of, um, in, you know, just like a revelation of your presence? That the words that you've reserved for us are actually just leading us to you, to trust you? God, would you be with those that were touched by the testimony that was shared? I know we've got Scott and his wife and little Ezra in the NICU right now. We pray for them, little baby Ezra. How hard it is. How scary it is. Would you meet the fears that are in this room, Lord? Would you, would you touch and remove the anxiety and the worry? Would you remove the shame and the guilt that comes as we beat ourselves up for our own weaknesses? Would you speak to someone today, God, that... They're spending all of their life in their job and then they're going to find out one day that it, it didn't amount to much. Would you give them a heart for their coworkers? Would you give them a heart for the customers? You know, the way the business works right now, it's like it turns each other. We turn people on one another, but would you give them a heart for, Lord, the, their employees, you know, business owner, Lord, that you just bless them with this wisdom? Would, would, you, give them, would you give them a heart, God? that I just have those visions, Lord, of shredding all that paper. It took so long. And yet even that wasn't wasted by you. So thank you. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for your faithfulness and your goodness. And I would just say as we're praying, if you're here today, you've never given your life to Jesus Christ, this is the day. This is the moment right now doesn't matter how far you've gone or how good you might be, apart from Jesus Christ, there is no hope and no help in the trials of your life. I met a man last night. His name is Adam. He responded to the invitation. He's two weeks clean from uh, being addicted to opiates. You know, we, we see all these news articles about opiates and we think, oh, it's a crisis, it's a national crisis. And indeed it is, but let me tell you something. You can define crisis by one person at a time. These people have family. They have moms and dads. They have brothers and sisters. They have children. Some have grandchildren. And, and the addiction of these narcotics and these drugs are destroying their lives. But Adam, Adam found himself in a room like this broken and crushed by the sin that came upon him, upon himself. He brought it upon himself. And maybe that's you, but you got a different name. Maybe you're the good person that really hasn't done anything wrong in your life. And the greatest thing you've done that's wrong is simply not accepting the love of your creator. So I want to give you a chance today to receive the Lord Jesus Christ, to ask him into your life. Every time Jesus called someone to record, he called him openly. And so we want to do that. We want to follow in his footsteps and call you openly, that you can confess with your mouth the belief that you have in your heart that Jesus Christ is alive. He lived, died, and rose again. So if that's you, would you just stand to your feet? We want to pray with you that God has made this day as an appointment in your life, that today you'll get your life right with your creator here and now, that this is the day. God bless you.
Who else would say that's me? God bless you. Stick with me for a moment as we wait for others. Because it takes time. This is a hard thing to process. You might get embarrassed or you might go, I don't think religion's for me or church is for me. Listen, I'm not calling you to any religion. I'm not even asking you to come back to this church except that it would be good for you to grow. I'm asking you to come into a relationship with the living Savior. His name is Jesus Christ. There's no other name under heaven that man can be saved. No man can save you. No church can save you. No religion can save you. Only God. So if that's you, today's the day. Just stand up. Acknowledge God. And I'm going to lead you in a prayer in a moment where you can confess that. And of course, you guys on the radio, we don't see you or downstairs I don't see you and sometimes even in the room I don't see you because of the lights and things but praise God that he sees you and he knows you standing sitting kneeling walking driving wherever you are you're not beyond the love of God and so ask God today you could say something like this dear God I ask you to forgive me of all of my sin I admit that I have failed you, God. But I believe you sent Jesus Christ, your only son, to live for me, to die for me, and to rise again. And I commit my life to following you all the days of my life. And I ask you, God, to help me to repent and turn away from my sin to deliver me and to teach me what it means to follow you. Father, I know anyone anywhere that would come to you, your Bible says you won't cast them out, but I also know that it's not always a real thing. Sometimes it's just emotions. And so I just pray those that would cry out to you today that if it is emotional, it would still be the real deal and that true spiritual birth has been given today to those that came to you. True spiritual healing. Pour out your spirit, God, upon us today. Heal the brokenhearted. Comfort the anxious and the worried. Convict, Lord, the proud. Make them the man and the husband that you created them to be. Enough of this pride that that man listening to me right now would humble himself before his wife and before her family and before his family, that you, he might open a channel of your Holy Spirit to work in him once again. That's a word from the Lord for someone. That today's a day of breakthrough. You don't have to leave here more proud than when you came in. Humble yourself. Let God use you. Thank you, God, for your faithfulness. Bless those that would come to you today. In Jesus' name, amen. We pray that you've been encouraged by this Bible study delivered live from the sanctuary of Calvary Aurora. For prayer or a copy of this study, call us at 877-30-GRACE. That's 877-304-7223. Or visit us online at calvaryaurora.org. Be blessed as you worship Jesus this week 